clear. Gifts are free. Works are not yours. You can't boast of what you're doing. It's all been done by Jesus. Then you will be in a relationship with God where you can say yes to Him without thinking it changes His opinion of you. Does that make sense? So whenever we talk about obedience, you have to get it here. And I think that, that, that initial Sabbath is a particularly good illustration, a particularly good description of it. The Apostle Paul would draw on this thing, and so I feel like I'm in good company calling on that. That it's a rest first so that you can follow God in the week. In the knowledge that I am covered by His grace, I can place my hand firmly in His and say, let's go. Make sense? All right. So moving in to our discussion of Job. Moving into the idea, the concept of obeying like Job. In Job chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Now I'm going to be looking at Job 1, a little bit of 2. We're going to look at a little bit of 23. And then we're going to jump to the New Testament. So if you're looking to get ready, you'd like to be prepared, here's your opportunity. One day the members of the heavenly court came to present themselves before the Lord, and the accuser, Satan, came with them. Where have you come from, the Lord asked. See, Job finds himself, we get the picture, we get a background story before Job ever knows what's going on. Job finds himself caught up in this weird cosmic conflict this conflict between good and evil that's behind the scenes in the whole story. And it's like a movie where they show you what's going on as the movie starts. They show you the background as the movie gets started. They don't wait to reveal to you what's really going on behind the scenes. Job puts it right up front. He said, there's a conflict going on between good and evil, between Christ and Satan, between, between God and, and the, 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 the once angel, the fallen angel Lucifer. And in that conflict, Job is getting caught up. And so Satan shows up in this meeting. This is a weird thing to us as, a, as humans. We're like, hey, wait, they have meetings? So those of you who hate meetings. Maybe they'll have better food at these meetings. One day in heaven they had a meeting. God had called together the, the sort of the members of the heavenly court and the members of the representatives of this, of this heavenly court. And Satan shows up. And God's, God's question is what everybody's question is. What are you doing here? Where have you come from? Satan gives him the answer. Oh, I have been strolling. I like this, I like this translation. I have been patrolling and strolling the earth, watching everything that's going on. I've been cruising around the earth, checking stuff out. I've been watching what's going on around here. I've been looking at all that's happening on this uh, little blue speck of a planet that you seem to be focused on. Just checking stuff out. So God says, Have you noticed my servant Job? This is one of those passages of Scripture that bugs me every time I read it. To bug you. Bugs me because, look, God, I don't want you pointing Satan at me. I would much rather fly under the radar where he's concerned. 
Can we just not talk about me in front of him? Because it's like a challenge. It's like, okay, stand here on this dusty road, pistols ready to roll. And I'm in the middle. Have you considered my servant Job? Now, it's awesome that Job is considerable, right? It's amazing that God is aware of this amazing guy and, and that he's pointing him out to this heinous hater of mankind. Kinda. Have you noticed my servant Job? He is the finest man in all the earth. He's blameless. A man of complete integrity. I love the description of Job. I don't like who it's being described to. He fears God and stays away from evil. How's, what's the description of Job's life? What, what's working for this guy? Pretty simple. Two things. He's in this understanding of God where he fears God. And remember, when you're, you get into this Old Testament discussion of God, don't be a, this is not the, the be afraid thing. Be afraid of God is, is third grade level, first understanding of God. And it, it's not an, un, an, an impossible, it is a realistic, wise thing to be doing. If you're running in opposition to God, maybe a little fear would be good. It's like being afraid of the stronger person. But when he's describing what's going on with Job, he's not describing fear like we think of it as being afraid. He is in awe of God. He thinks God is amazing. He recognizes the authority and the power and the awesomeness of God. And he avoids evil. How's that for a description of your life? Hey, have you considered John? Great guy. He's an amazing guy. He understands that I am actually God. And he avoids evil. Isn't that a pretty good description? Isn't that a pretty good hope, a direction? If, if, if that were the way people described you, would you feel good about it? If people in the grocery store said, oh yeah, oh yeah, I remember Kathy, she comes into the store regularly. I know her. Yes, she has an amazing relationship with God and she avoids evil. Great, great description. Great description. So why come to Job when we're talking about obedience? Because is that way you, the way you would describe obedience? Most of us wouldn't. Most of us would want our boxes checked in this obedience discussion. We would want to make sure, oh, did that right? Did that right? Did that right? Did that right? Look at Job. I went through his entire paper and he got 100%. He checked all the right boxes. I gave him some five choice, multiple choices, and he still got them right. This was harder than a DMV test, and he still got them all right. Job is cool. Job is amazing. Job is obedient. That's not how God describes him exactly. He says he's blameless, which, by the way, so are you. If you've accepted the covering of Jesus, you are, in fact, blameless. And then if you add the second half of this description of him, his relationship with God causes him to be blameless and he avoids evil. He he tries to stay away from bad stuff. Could you be described that way? I think most of the people in this room could could be described that way. In fact, maybe everyone in this room could be described that way. You, You avoid bad stuff. 
You, you try to stay away from evil. You avoid that stuff. Why Job? Well, because in Job, we have a family member who's a lot like us. His life is a lot like the life of most people who have lived on the planet for very long. Job is caught in the middle of things far beyond his understanding, and he's trying to hang on to his faith. Is that a description of most of us? So we've got the front end description is, hey, he has the right relationship with God, which causes him to be blameless. And he's trying to avoid evil. But if you look at what's being described in this story, here's a guy caught in, a, in some big messes, horrible messes in his life. He's in the midst of some things that he does not fully understand. The book explains that if it explains nothing else. He does not really understand what's going on. You do. You got to see the first scene of the movie. He didn't. And so he ends up blaming the wrong partner in this thing all the time. And he's just trying to hang on to his faith through the process. That's a pretty 21st century picture of the way we go about the business of trying to follow God. So the first round starts. Ding! Bell rings. And in the first round, Job's family gets decimated. Job's a rich man. And in one day, his riches get wiped out. Riches are largely measured in terms of his, his, his uh, animals, and they're just wiped out. The Sabaeans take some, some of others are destroyed and killed. The hardest thing for most of us in this story is what happens to his children. His children are at a big party at one of the brothers' houses, and this re- weird wind comes rolling in. I think, think tornado when I think about it. And it collapses the house, and they're all dead. Job's life is decimated. Anybody ever faced a moment when your life felt like it was decimated? Anybody ever had one of their kids in the hospital? Or one of their grandkids? Last year, my youngest grandson was in the hospital. And when he was taken to the hospital, I don't know how, how well you, how many times you've seen a baby that's sick, but when a baby gets sick, gets dehydrated, things start happening. They get very limp. They, they, there's, they don't have a lot of reserves to call on. And to see him in the hospital, in that still, kind of unmoving, listless, not breathing real well, things poking into his body, as a, as a grandparent, and as his parents, as we're standing around this bed, any one of us would have happily traded places. Would have happily traded places. In those moments, in those moments when life seems to be getting away from you, when you don't have an answer for why this is happening, when your life is in a, a, a kind of a spin, you're standing right next to Job. Job has taken it in ways that I don't think anyone in here has ever taken it. The punches he's gotten in the first round would lay almost all of us out and cost most of us our faith. And Job takes the first round and he stands up and he tears his robe in grief. He shaves his head in grief. 
He falls to the ground in a posture of worship. It's also the posture of grief. And he says, I came naked from my mother's womb. And I will be naked when I leave. The Lord gave me what I had. And the Lord has taken it away. Stop. Is he right? Who took his stuff? Satan did. Now you can blame God because this is this, this, you know, okay corral sort of situation between God and Satan. You're welcome to blame God if you want. The, the Old Testament blames God all the time. Anything that God could prevent, he's responsible for. And you can, you, you can take that position if you want, and God will not be afraid of you taking that position. But if the facts of the story are known, and we've seen the facts of the story, we know, we've just read the chapter. We've, we've, by, by the time we've gotten here, we know what's going on. He says the Lord gave and he's taken away. Praise the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. Does the previous verse look like he blamed God? You see, he's not saying God is causing me harm yet. He is saying God is God. Second round. Bell rings. Satan is back in, conf- in a, in a conflab with God and he leaves the presence of the Lord and he strikes Job with terrible boils. You know, his argument was, hey, yeah, take away his stuff. He still stays cool, but touch him. If he has to suffer, if he has to suffer physically himself, He'll walk away from you in a heartbreak, heartbeat. So he strikes him with terrible boils, head to foot. Have you ever had a, had a boil? Even one? I have had them, two or three of them. When I was a kid, I had a couple of them. This is one of the most painful, irritating, aggravating things. They just hurt. And there's not much you can do about them except try to lance them, which is gross at best and also requires a certain level of courage and bravery and whatever else you want to call it. Try telling about a 10-year-old kid, the only way to get rid of this pain is for us to cut you. So we're just going to, come here, we're just going to cut you a little. So he ends up sitting outside scraping his skin with a broken piece of pottery to try to relieve some of the pain. How are things going for this guy? Would you trade places with him? I don't want any part of what happened to him. You know what I want in Job's life? I want the fence that was around him before the mess got started. I prayed for that a lot of times. I prayed for that for you. I prayed for that for our church. That, that, that you, that God would put the hedge around us, the hedge around you, the hedge around this church family that was around Job that was impenetrable to the devil. But after God puts a gate in that thing and lets Satan through the gate, I, I don't want anything to do with the rest of Job's experience.
all by himself because nobody else wants anything to do with his experience either. Mrs. Job shows up. She's round three. All by herself. His wife said to him, Are you still trying to maintain your integrity? Do you hear the you idiot in that sentence? Curse God and die. You want to end this? I'll tell you how to end it. Curse God, die. Be done with it. The whole thing's over. It's, it's spiritual and physical suicide, Job. Go with it. Curse God, he'll wipe you out. Because how does, how does Job's wife feel about what's going on with God? That all of this has only one source, and it is God. And if Job wants to end the trouble he's feeling, all he has to do is make God a little more angry. Because clearly, he's mad at you. It is very, very tempting when you are asking why about your life to start weighing yourself in the balances of God's judgment, recognizing that you are not measuring up and assuming that what is happening to you is somehow the hand of God. Now, like I said, if you want to say anything God can prevent that He doesn't prevent, He's responsible for, you can go there. Just deal with Him on it. Just take that and discuss it with Him. So Job replies, You talk like a foolish woman. By the way, gentlemen, not a good sentence to remember in the Bible. Do not say... Honey, I am quoting Job chapter 1 verse 9. Do not you talk like a foolish woman. Bad decision. That will linger over you for years. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? Who does Job think the bad stuff is coming from? Who do you speak to when you ask the question, why? You see, we're, we're right in the boat with Job. When life is not going the way we want, we jump right on the same track that Job jumps on. We are responding in the same way to the issues that happen in our lives. We are asking God, why are you letting this happen? Why are you doing this to me? Where are you when I need your protection? What happened here? We had an agreement. I follow you and good stuff is all I experience. That was our agreement. At least that's what I signed up for. Right? Anybody ever actually lived more than 10 minutes without that agreement kind of blowing up on you? You talk like a foolish woman. Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? So in all of this, we're at round three. Job said nothing wrong. He's holding it together. 
He's been through three rounds, two with Satan and one with his wife, and he's still holding it together. He's still maintaining zip on the lip. This is a confusion, a confusion about who God is that we all need to grapple with and accept. The scripture says pretty clearly that every good and perfect gift comes from God. Right? And Job, if it teaches nothing else, it says that we have an adversary in this world who, does no, who likes nothing more than to do you harm. Right? This theology, this concept, is something you need to work on. We accept as Americans a certain level of Calvinism. I've shared this with you before. We, we accept as Americans a, a sort of a cultural Calvinism that says God causes bad things to happen and good things to happen. There are certain people that he's doing bad stuff to and certain people that he's doing good stuff to. And if, it's, if God is doing something bad to you, it's your fault. You didn't pray right. Your faith wasn't deep enough. Whatever. But he's doing it to you. That is not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is that we are stuck in a battle and we are caught in the midst of some horrible things that are going on. And if you take 10 minutes and look at around our world, isn't that what you see? I mean, if you've ever seen wars and rumors of wars and men's hearts failing them for fear and earthquakes and famines and pestilence and all of the other descriptions in Matthew 24 of what's going on in the planet, they're pretty much alive and well today. And they're on the 24-hour news cycle, so if you'd like, you can watch those things live and in technicolor personally. So the fourth round starts. I promise this is not an 18-round fight. It's actually a 41-round fight, but we're not going to do all the rounds. Stop and think. Do the innocent die... Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot to identify the opponent. His buddies show up. His best friends show up. So these are, these are the best Job has in his life. These three dudes, there's actually four. Who, well, the fourth one stays quiet most of the time. These three dudes, three dudes show up and they're going to help. They then start... Stop and think. Now, this is his buddy talking to Job. Stop and think. Do the innocent die? What's the answer to that question? Yes. Do you want to just slap this guy now? I do. When have the upright been destroyed? Every day? My experience shows that those who plant trouble cultivate evil and will harvest the same. His buddy shows up and says, this is your fault, man. This is your fault. You've, you've clearly cultivated evil and you're harvesting evil. This is clearly on you. What's he trying to do? Who's he trying to defend? God. He's trying to say to Job, things are going so sideways in your life. Things are so bad for you, buddy. You must have done something to make God mad because this doesn't happen unless you do it. You cause it. 
You ever said something stupid to try to defend God? I have. I'm a professional. It's my job to defend God. At least I think so. And I regularly find myself having to eat the words that want to come out of my mouth. Where I want to look at the person sitting across from the table from me and say, Well, it's pretty clear to me you've screwed the whole thing up. Otherwise this wouldn't be happening to you. Sometimes it's actually true. There are reasons for the bad things that happen in our lives, remember? Reason number one, we did it. We jumped off the roof and then blamed God for falling. And particularly for the sudden stop at the bottom. Somebody else jumped off the roof and used us to break their fall. And a lot of bad things happen because the death rate in our planet is 100%. Wasn't our fault. Wasn't anybody else's fault unless you want to blame Adam. And you can blame him. Just when you get to heaven, give him a break. This isn't the time to say life was pretty pretty crummy for me and it's your fault. Might want to let go of that. Job's friends have the same theology of Job's wife and as we listen to Job, we find out Job has the same theology as well. The reason I want to take the time to really explore this and talk to you about it is because most of us have this idea. It's planted in us. It's a seed back there. Some of us, it's a full-grown 200-foot redwood tree in us. But it's wrong. It is wrong. God is not going around dealing out cancer to people because they said something that made him mad. God is not causing car accidents in your family because he's unhappy with you. It's a messed up way of understanding God. And this book is trying to illustrate that we are in a cosmic battle and Satan is behind most, if not all, of the evil we are dealing with. And I think you could use the word all. And the only responsibility God has in it is that he's big enough to win the fight if he wants to fight and he's not fighting yet. You can blame him there. But yet, my favorite statement of faith in Scripture is Job's. Job has a messed up theology about God. And so do we. Job does not understand God. We're in the same boat. Remember? The logic argument, if you actually ever fully understand God, you get to replace Him. 
Nobody wants to see that happen. So it is logically impossible for us to fully understand God, God so we can be sure that our theology is messed up somewhere. Job has a messed up theology that God penalizes people for things they're making decisions about. There's no grace here. There's no mercy here. There's just your act, his response. And in face of that comes this verse. Though he slay me, who? God. Even if God kills me, though God decides today to end my life, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. So after I die, I'm going to talk to him about it. I love the, I love the temerity. Indeed, this will all turn out for my deliverance. Though he slay me, the King James says, still I will trust him. Even if he kills me, I'm going to trust him. My theology is so messed up, I think he might kill me. But I'm going to trust him. This is one of the greatest statements of faith in all the Bible. Because he doesn't understand. He's choosing to hang on to his faith in spite of his misunderstanding. Such a powerful statement. Sometimes when we don't understand is the very time when our faith is demonstrated the best. And when we think we understand, we usually are in trouble. So in Job chapter 23, my complaint today is still a bitter one. We've worked through round after round after round of Job's friends attacking him, and Job responding, and Job's friends attacking him, and Job responding, and Job's friends attacking him. And we're now about halfway through the book, and he says, my complaint is still a bitter one. And I try hard not to groan aloud. I only, if only I knew where to find God. I like this picture because he's like, if I could find him, we would have a talk. That's really what he's saying. If I only knew where to find him, there'd be a conversation. If I only knew where to find God, I would go to his court. I would lay out my case and present my argument. Have your prayers ever been a presentation of an argument with God? Mine are sometimes. <laughs> when you think about it retrospectively, it's so silly. Do you really think you're going to win this argument? But there we are. And, I, and it's like when your two-year-old would come in and your, your three-year-old would come in and they would raise themselves up to their full three-foot, plant their hands on their hips, and give you what you needed to know about life. And you look back at them and you just grin. You try not to because you don't want them to feel bad. You don't want to make fun of them, but you're like, okay, thanks. I'll write that down. It's got to be how God feels. He looks at us like, really? That's your argument. Okay. You're cute. Go play. He wants to have an argument with God. 
about his situation. We're talking about a life of obedience like Job and living like Jesus. And we find Jesus in Matthew 26 in the same predicament. He's in a situation where for whatever reason, the darkness that has fallen on his understanding, whatever the reason, he knows the cross is coming. He's not sure that the tomb is not the end. He knows that this is going to be harsh and difficult and painful. And in Matthew 26, the Bible says he goes a little further into Gethsemane after leaving Peter, James, and John to pray for him. Three of his buddies, best guys he's got. How do they pay off in this? Hey guys, would you pray for me for a few minutes? I'm going to go a little further. And he kneels down and he pleads with God and he says... I know what's ahead. If there is any other way to do this, can we do that? Can, can I, can we, can we let this pass without my having to drink the dregs of this cup? Can we let this pass with my not having to face what's coming ahead of me? And he gets up from weeping and, and, and crying out to God and he goes back to find his friends and they're asleep and he says, guys, hey, wake up. Can you pray for me for a little while? Ever fall asleep while you're praying for somebody? Just leave that there. He looks at him. He says, hey, can you guys wake up? And he goes back in and he goes and he prays again and he falls down. And he says, God, please, I don't understand what's happening, but I can't see. I can't see past this thing. I can't get my mind around it. But if we could do this in any other way, please let this cup pass from me. But in spite of my lack of, uh, of understanding in the moment, I, I, if this is what you want, if this is the way it has to be, I trust the plan. And he goes back and he finds his friend sleeping again. And he goes back and he prays. And the third time he says, is there any other way to do this? The Bible says Jesus was tempted in all manner like we. And so ignorance of the outcomes of the future had to be part of his temptation. I think we're looking at it. And the third time he says, if there's any other way, please, please let this cup pass from me. But yet, not my will. Not my will in this state of brokenness. We know that prior to this, he has described this specifically to the disciples, but in this moment, not my will. In this moment of weakness, in this moment of darkened understanding, not my will, but your will be done. He walks out of the garden, sets his face toward the cross, and finishes it. Why Job? Because the obedience of Job is not perfect. The obedience of Job is messy. It's uncertain. It's heart-wrenching. And yet it stands firmly on his faith in God. How does one obey like Job? Honestly. Authentically. 
having those face-to-face arguments with God about what's happening in your life. Coming to Him with the real questions, not the ones you think He wants you to have. And saying, I don't like this. I don't like this at all. I'm going to trust you because I believe that's the best way through whatever I'm looking at. But I'm just telling you right now, God, I would really like this to go in a different direction. We are called, challenged, with the lives of people like this, to walk a path we're not going to want to be on sometimes. Do it in the full light of day. And trusting God no matter what. Let's pray. Father, everyone in this room knows the messiness of faith. We know that our days are up and down. That we falter a lot of times more than we succeed. That our trust wanes sometimes. But we choose the messiness of our yes. And the weakness of our lack of understanding. By faith, we will follow where you lead. Assured of the covering of your grace. The mercy and love of the hand we hold. Amen. See the love in your eyes.
take our failure, you take our weakness, you set your treasures in jars of clay. So take this heart, Lord, I'll be your vessel, the world to see your life in me. Thank you for this service in which we could focus on what Sabbath is about, that remembrance that it's our time to press into a rest with you, a rest to prepare us for the week ahead because we are caught up in a battle, a battle that's not against flesh and blood but against the evil spirits that would long to catch us up with them. And, Father, by spending that time in rest and communion with you, we can just be renewed in you, press in further with you, gain that strength we need to face the battle of the coming week. And, Father, help us to remember, above all things, you are a God of love and that you do not cause us harm. It's because of the battle that we're caught in, harm happens. Because of the fall way back when that humanity chose, bad things happen. If you had it your way, you would have us home right now. You would have had that the fall would never have needed to occur. But in your goodness and your mercy, you gave us free will. And in our fallen nature, we didn't choose the best always. 
And we still don't, Lord, but you are that God of amazing grace who've covered our sins with the blood of your Son, that we can approach the throne and say, My Savior, my God, be with me today and every day. Come live in my heart until the day you take us all home. Thank you, Lord, for being the God of the Sabbath, the God of every day, the God of our lives. We praise you and worship you. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, church, it's that time in which we're going to take a little break, have some snacks to enjoy in the back, find some visitors and people you haven't seen for a while, like Ethel Freeman bought it over here, probably heard her during the service. That's right. (laughs) So say hi to old friends as well, and uh, just take some time to greet each other, fellowship a little bit, and then we'll be going into our discipleship classes with kids down the hall, other classes here in the main auditorium. Happy Sabbath, church. Savior lives, my Savior's always there for me. My God, He was, 
skill to understand what God has will, what God has planned. I only know at His right hand stands one who is my